Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm excited to be with you again this morning. We're continuing our series called Summer of Love. If you're just joining us, we're looking at the letter of 1st John. There's three letters uh, named after John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. This is the first one. It's towards the end of your Bible. We're just going through it passage by passage and unpacking uh, what John is saying to the church of his day and discovering what in the world that makes it so incredibly relevant to us, to what's happening around us today. So this morning we're in chapter two. I want to dive right in. We're picking up right where we left off in verse 15, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He starts off this way, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. That's a strong statement, right? Now, what is he meaning by this? Do not love the world or anything in the world. Are we supposed to hate everything in the world that's not of God? Are we supposed to just like withdraw from society and isolate ourselves and reject all forms of, of, you know, pleasure and enjoyment and just live in misery? Well, no, that's not what John is saying here. But what he is saying is very crucial for us to understand and not to ignore. To do this, we want to first off unpack two, there's two key words in this verse, and that is love and world. We want to unpack these words and see what does he mean to love God versus the world And what does he mean by the world? The first thing we want to do is I want to look at what John means by the world. What John doesn't mean is the physical creation that God made. Genesis tells us that he created the whole world, everything, and he called it what? Good. Good. He called it good. Uh, He doesn't mean the people in the world that he, he loves, right? That God loves. He sent his son to save. In fact, in the gospel of John, it says that God loved the world so much that he gave Jesus to them. And so we know he's not talking about not loving people. And he doesn't mean the society that we're called to engage with and influence for Christ. What John's talking about here is something more specific, and it's actually something kind of more sinister. He uses, John uses this Greek word, cosmos. Cosmos can have a lot of different meanings depending on the context. It can mean the physical creation, but it can also have uh, the meaning that John often uses and that he's using here in, in his writings, which is the system of sin and rebellion against God that operates under the influence of Satan. You can think of cosmos as the system. It's like the systems of the world that are just fundamentally against God. It's, it's the values and desires that oppose God's character and his will. It's, it's the way of life that uh, is driven by selfishness and greed and lust and power and pride and idolatry. So, so God, John is, is directly contrasting the world, and we could think of this as, as the way of the world versus the way of the kingdom. You know, we talk a lot about the kingdom here. The way of the kingdom is one way. The way of the world is, is different. And so he's contrasting the world with God and his love. And so it'll become obvious uh, more as we go along the meaning that John's getting at here. Now, the word for love here is critical to getting at what John is saying also, because what John uses is the word agape. This is agape. It's not just like affection. It's agape, which is always reserved for people. Agape is always for people. You don't agape, you know, you're... uh, a taco. 
as much as I'm drawn to do that. You're right. You don't agape a place, you know, your favorite vacation spot. You agape people. Agape is a selfless, it's a sacrificial, unconditional love. It's the same word that uh, John uses to describe God's love for us and, and our love for God. It's the love that involves our whole being, our whole spirit, soul, mind, and strength. So John is not telling us to not agape people, right? Because he would be contradicting himself. So what is John saying? He's saying that we are to love God. And if we're going to be like Christ, which we're told to do, that means loving people. We love God and we love the people that God loves, right? And, and we're even told elsewhere in the Gospels that even includes our enemies. So it's not just the, the nice people who are easy to love. It's our enemies. We're to love those people. But we aren't to love or be, you can think of it being loyal to the systems and values of this world that are in rebellion to God. We're not to have a, a loyalty or an affection for the systems that are in rebellion to God. In fact, he, he says if, if, if we love the ways of the world, it is fundamentally incompatible with loving God. He says the, you know, the love of God, that love for God is not even in you if, that's, if you have that love. Jesus says something really similar uh, in his Sermon on the Mount where he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now here, Jesus is talking about money as that example of that cosmos, that system of the world that is in competition with our love for God. But he could have used anything. John could have used, Jesus could have mentioned anything that becomes an idol in our life, you know, power, fame, sex, comfort, security, whatever it is. Um, I was thinking about this like this, uh, how many of you have like a very, you have a favorite restaurant? You have a place that you go to, uh, you probably get in the root, you know, you get in a routine, you go there, you know, maybe if not once a week, you're hitting it at least every two or three weeks. That's your go-to place. And how many of you have been to a place that you tried once and you'll never go again? <laughs> you have that place? I've got a restaurant, and I'm not, I don't want to name it, not, and, I'll, and I'll explain why I don't want to name it. I, I went to this place, and I really wanted to like it, and it was terrible. It was just this awful place. But here's the thing. When I went to this place, I really wanted to like it because, like, the people were really nice. I really liked the people who ran it. It was this little family, and, and it was just bad, you know? And the thing is, like, it's a very convenient place. And like if Lauren's listening, he knows who I'm talking about. It's, it's, just, it's really convenient. So it, like I want to like it. And so here's the thing I do. Like every six months, I go back to this place I, just to check. Like maybe they're doing better. I see they're still open. Somebody's going there. And I go there and I'm like, this is going to be it. You know, like, and they're like, hey, it's you. Yeah, okay, let's get it. And we get it and I dig in and oh, it's just like frozen cardboard. It's so bad. And I feel so bad, but I'm like, I want them to do well. It's, just, it's so convenient. It's so good. Um, like I said, I don't want to, we'll call it Billy Bob's. It's Billy Bob's. And I want Billy Bob to do well. And, but every time I go and I, and I go back, now no one would ever, if, if, if ever I said, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like Billy Bob's. Now that doesn't mean that I hate Billy Bob, right? I, I'm, I'm all for Billy Bob and their whole family. I'm, I'm pulling for him, right? 
But also, if I said to you, yeah, I love, I love Billy Bob, you would assume, I mean, I love the food, right? I mean, if you said, you know, you love Taco Bell, that you would assume you're not talking about the people, you're talking about like the fruit of their labor, right? Oh, you, you know, love that place. Now listen, and I'm not, I'm not a food snob. I like good food. You know, if I am having tacos, I'm going to go like to Sophie's and have it amazing because she's going to make it a little taqueria around the corner. But I'm not above going to Taco Bell when I need some crunchy tacos. I, I'm not a snob. But Billy Bob's, is ju it's just not good, right? <laughs> so funny. It's funny because like, uh, it's actually, yeah, it's actually a Chinese place, which is a funny thing to call it, Billy Bubs. Um, and the thing is, I've like gotten to know them. I've like met them and like heard their story. And like they came here from Asia, you know, out of mainland China. I'm like, this is an amazing story. Y'all should make better food. That's what I'm thinking to myself. <laughs> this should be better. I don't know. Anyway, but so, so here's the thing. You can, you can, you can love a place. You can love the people of the place. You can pull for them. You can love what they're trying to do. And, and, and just, you know, the food is terrible. What John is warning us about, is, this is actually going to make sense, hopefully. What John is warning us about here is, is what he's just done telling us in the previous verse. You belong to God. Remember last week we talked about you belong to God. You're God's people. He's washed away your sins. You're strong. But some of us are still like tempted by bad Chinese food. And there is something so much better he's given us. Now, that doesn't mean we don't love Billy Bob and his family. But, you know, there's, there's something there. We don't need to be tempted by that. And the point is that anything in our life that takes priority uh, over God in our life is an enemy of God. And we have to really see this, that it's an enemy of God. Anything that distracts us from his purpose in our life is an obstacle to his plan in our life. And so temptations that come along can be a trap that the enemy uses to derail us. And then, so the next verse is really cool because then John gives us some clues as to what these traps look like. And, and we can just see this as sort of this trifecta of evil here. He says, for everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now here again, he's using this very general term, world, right? So is he talking about the whole planet, right? Is he talking about trees and art and marriage and good tacos? You know, no, no, he's not talking. These are not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the fallen system. Everything in the fallen system of this world, and he summarizes it with these three things, these three enemies of our love for God, three enemies that are part of the world system. They're designed to, to deceive us and distract us and destroy us. And the first enemy he points out is the lust of the flesh, lust of the flesh. This is the desire for uh, physical pleasure and gratification. It's pretty much just what it sounds like. It's the desire to satisfy your appetites and impulses without regard for God's will or his design, right? Now, it's not wrong to have pleasure, but if it's outside of his will or his design, then we've gone into something different. And in fact, what's interesting is the word John uses here. The Greek word for, you know, what's translated here is lust. You know, that's a very, that's a, you know, it's a pretty bad word. But the word John uses is this Greek word epithumia, which is not neither good nor bad. It's a kind of a neutral word. Epithumia means a strong desire or craving. 
for something, whether it's good or bad. Now, it's not wrong to have a strong desire, right? Uh, it can be translated as other places in the Bible, uh, epithumia is translated desire, sometimes passion, sometimes a longing. Jesus uses this word when he's talking about himself, when he says how much he desired to eat the Passover meal with his disciples. He epithumiaed to eat this. So, but Jesus also uses this word when he's talking to these uh, Pharisees, and he calls them the son of the devil because of the things that they crave, right? So it's like it could go both ways. And so it's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Ten Commandments in the uh, prohibition against coveting, that coveting. So you can kind of get the sense. So this, this desire can go bad quickly. In this passage, it has a negative connotation for sure. And it refers to sinful or selfish desires that are contrary to God's will and his ways. The second enemy he lists is the lust of the eyes. He uses that same word, epithumia, but now he's talking about the eyes. And this is the desire for material possessions or wealth. This is the desire to accumulate things, uh, things that we see, things that we want. It's, it's, it really gets down to being discontent with what we have. It's the lust for money or status or comfort, security. And then the third word is really interesting. It's this word, uh, it's this phrase, the pride of life. And some of your Bibles, you, if you have one open, it might use a different uh, phrase to translate this because this is a really interesting word. It's kind of a hard word to translate. This Greek word is alazonia. It, and it, it doesn't have an exact English translation. Uh, I was thinking, you know, have you ever heard of those like cool German words that don't have an English equivalent, but they mean something like really specific, like that word uh, Schweidenfrade, which means to take pleasure in someone else's displeasure or someone else's pain. You take, uh, you know, it's, it sounds like a terrible thing, but like the Germans like made this word about that. I just thought that was so, <laughs> they have this other word called Verschlimmenzern, and it means uh, to try your best to improve something, but you only make it worse. Like, they have a word for that. Like, how cool is that, right? We have to, like, say a whole sentence. Well, this Greek word is kind of like that. It's kind of like that. What it literally means, if you were going to say it all out, this one word, Elizonia, it means boast, arrogantly boasting in empty things that aren't worth boasting about. So it's kind of a false sense of superiority, self-importance. It makes you think highly of yourself when you really hadn't earned it, right? It, it's, it's, it makes you think highly of yourself. Uh, we could think of it as excessive craving for personal glory or recognition, living for fame. Uh, and the reason why that's so deadly is because it fundamentally, it fundamentally denies our dependence upon God, right, and His grace. And so these are three enemies of our love for God, three enemies of love. Now, as I'm reading these, it's, it's suddenly dawning on me that I think I've seen these before. These seem familiar, and, and the reason is that's true. This is a pattern that is repeated all throughout Scripture, right? There, you could trace it all the way back to the very beginning of Scripture, the first humans in the Bible. In Genesis 3, we read about how Satan came to Eve in the form of a serpent and tempted her to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Like, everybody's heard that story, right? Eat, you know, eat the apple. And God had forbidden them to eat the apple, and she, you know, how does he tempt Eve, though? 
Well, he comes with the same three enemies. He uses the lust of the flesh. He says to Eve, you're not, you're not going to die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and that apple is going to taste really good. It even says like it looked really good to her when she saw it. It appealed to her desire for pleasure and wisdom gratification, right? It made her doubt God's word and his, his goodness. And, and, and he uses the lust of the eye. He says to Eve, look at the tree, look at its fruit. It's good for food. And he appeals to her desire for more. He makes her covet. He, you know, helps her to, makes her covet what God has not given her. It makes her think like she's missing out on something. And he uses the pride of life. He says, you're going to be like God. You're going to have so much wisdom. You'll know good from evil. And he appeals to her desire for just that personal glory, you know, makes her think that she can live independently of God and His authority. And of course, what does Eve do? She gives into temptation. Uh, her and Adam, they, they eat from the tree. And it's a pattern repeated over and over and over. The sin of Adam and Eve gets repeated in the story of Israel, the children of Israel. When God makes them His people, He offers them Himself, and they continually choose the temptations of the world around them over, the, over a relationship with God. So it's really no wonder when we get to the story of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus comes to earth. He's going to begin his ministry. What is the first thing Satan tries to do? Repeat his tricks. It's the same trick. It's the same three triad of evil. He tempts Jesus in these three ways. In Matthew 4, we read, Satan comes to Jesus after Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Mm -hmm. And he's been fasting, and so he's hungry, right? And Satan tempts him to turn away from God's will and his ways, his plan, the plan that's going to lead him to the cross and then to resurrection and bring salvation to the world. What does he tempt him with? Well, number one, he tries to tempt him with the lust of the flesh. Literally, he says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. They're going to be so good, right? You're hungry. He appeals to his hunger, his need for gratification, he appeals to the lust of the eyes. It says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, all of these things, I will give you. I'll give you the power over, these, all, over all these places if you'll just fall down and worship me. Right? So he's appealing to this human desire for material possessions, for wealth and for power. Trying to get, trying to get Jesus to want what God has not given him yet. And it's basically, it's a shortcut to his destiny. And then he uses the pride of life. He takes him, says he takes him to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Everybody will see how amazing you are. Right? These are the temptations we all face all the time. He appeals. He's trying to appeal to Jesus's, you know, like some kind of need for personal glory. But Jesus does what Adam and Eve couldn't. He does what Israel couldn't. He does what you and I can't do without the Spirit of God inside of us. He resists temptation. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, how does Jesus do this? How does he resist temptation? You could say, well, obviously, Jesus is God. Come on. It's not hard for him. I mean, he's just stronger than the rest of us. He's, you know, he's God. You could say he's really, really spiritual, and he out-spiritualizes the devil. And, and it even points out how he quotes Scripture back to the devil. You know, so you could say, well, if we, if we know more Scripture, we'll be able to defeat the devil. You could say, well, Jesus just has really, really great willpower. He's just able, you know, to go, even though he's hungry, to go, no, 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 you know, to the idea of eating all that bread, turning rocks into bread. He just has more willpower than the rest of us. But how would John, since we're looking at 1 John, how would John say that Jesus defeated temptation. 
How, how would he say that he succeeds where others fail and we can succeed where others fail? How can we hope to resist this triad of, of temptation? John gives us the secret in this very passage that we're reading. Jesus succeeds because of one thing, because of his love. Jesus has love. He loves and trusts the Father. And he loves you more than he loves the things and the systems and the temptations and bad Chinese food of the world, right? So how do we resist temptation? It's actually not just about spending your whole day trying to muster the willpower to resist temptation. How many of you tried to do that and fail repeatedly, right? It's about learning to love. The secret, the, your victory over temptation is found in learning how to love, what you love. And this is the brilliance of what John is telling us here. I'm telling you, it's just so amazing. He directly ties, John directly ties this warning about the lusts of life with the challenge for us to pay attention to, to where the love of our heart is directed. It turns out that love is more powerful than willpower in helping you resist temptation. Now, I'm going to give you three reasons for that, first of all. First, loving God satisfies us. When, when loving God, it fills us with his presence, right, with his peace and his joy. Loving God gives us a sense of purpose and meaning and value. It, it makes us content with what we have, makes us grateful for the things that we have. And, and, you know, Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart's going to be also. Loving God makes God our greatest treasure and our ultimate reward. When we love God, He becomes the greatest thing we could ever want. And so when we love God like that, we don't need to look to the world for lesser satisfactions. We don't need to chase after empty pleasures and possessions and praise. We don't need to chase after those things because those things are never going to love us back. But God will. He does. The second thing is that God, when we love God, that transforms us. Loving God changes us from the inside out. It's not just about willpower, willpower, willpower. We put our affections on things above and not on things of this world or the systems, those fallen systems of this world, right? Again, that's the systems. It's not the people, but the systems. What happens is the Holy Spirit can then begin to work inside of us to renew our minds, to purify us, to strengthen our will. Loving God shapes our desires. It really changes the things that you crave. It really does. It shapes our, our values and our goals. Loving God makes us more like Jesus and less like the world. And the third thing is that loving God empowers us. Because I think we said this last week, when you delight in his will, when you walk in your, his ways, you're no longer just you, right? You are filled with the one who is inside you. You are filled with the greater one. It's no longer just you. And, you know, it's not just me and my dinky little sad amount of willpower trying to fight these things. No, no, it's the, the greater one that lives within us. And, and I know some of you have almost given up trying to resist because you have failed so many times at resisting temptation. But I'm here to tell you, it's not more willpower that's going to make you an overcomer. It's learning how to love the one who loved you enough to die for every single one of your sins and, and loves you in spite of them. It's learning how to love him. 
learning how to love him. Now, let me take a quick little, little sidebar here, a little time out just for a second and give you a, one caveat here. This is like a, a little loving warning from pastor. Because this will derail the whole thing if, if we don't do this. You've got to stop toying with your relationship with things that want to destroy you. We have to stop toying with things that want to destroy us and start to recognize the enemies of our love for God for what they are. Recognize those things for what they are. Those things that tempt you are not just harmless, innocent little things. They're not just little nothings that you can play with. Recognize them for what they are, at least what they are to you, right? What they are for you. They're an enemy of your love for God. See those things as that. Just, this is an enemy of my love for God. Now, I know there are some things that maybe some people can enjoy without, and it's not a bondage to them. There are other things that are just wrong for everybody, right? The Bible talks about those things like that, period. But whatever it is that tempts you, see it as an enemy of your love for God. Because it isn't your friend. It isn't harmless. It isn't going to love you back. It's not going to give you life. It's not going to give you lasting joy. It's going to fade away. And in fact, this is exactly what John says in the very last verse that we're going to look at today. In, in verse 17, in this letter, he says, the world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That phrase, lives forever, it's the word that means abides. Like when Jesus says, abide in me, right? Snuggle up to me. And let me abide in you, right? And abides forever. That's that word eon. We talked about it several weeks ago, right? That eon life. It's that, that eternity kind of life. Eon thinking in, you know, in, in, instead of psyche thinking. Abides in eternity. Whoever does the will of God. And God wants, so, so John wants us to get our eyes off of, of every little distraction, of this temporary life that's going to fade away and start to live with an eternal perspective, a heavenly hope. You're faced with temptations. Use your imagination for good. Sometimes we're told like, oh, your imagination is just this terrible thing, right? Fantasizing. No, that's a terrible thing. Use it for good. God gave you this ability to imagine. So anticipate the day when God, you're going to see him face to face. Anticipate that day and enjoy his presence for, forever. Anticipate the day when those things no longer have a stronghold over you, right? Store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Why? Because all this stuff's going to pass away. It's all going to pass away. It fades, it perishes. The word for pass away here is this Greek word, and it means literally to become nothing, to disappear. It's just what it means. The things that seem so powerful that want to hold your gaze day after day, all throughout the week, that want to hold your attention, that scream for your loyalty, they have no lasting value or significance. They can't satisfy your deepest needs. Everything we hold tight here, hold tight to, it, even the good things, even the things that, you know, we, we love that are good and noble and beautiful, all of it's going to pass away. Everything's going to pass away. Jesus says something really similar in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And again, he's not talking about this physical place. He's talking about the realm of God. Store for yourselves in the kingdom. Make that your value, right? The earthly treasure that he's talking about here is anything that competes with our love for God. 
Let's go back to what John says in verse 17. Look at the last thing he says. He says, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The word for will there, it was so interesting. Remember we talked about earlier, what is the trifecta? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and, and, and the pride of life. And that word, epithumia, it, it means a craving. It means a desire, a strong desire. The word for will here is another word for desire. So he's just got done talking about these desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye. But whoever does, literally, the desire of God, those who love him are going to fulfill God's desires. Make that our priority. What is God's desires? His will. Because his will is always going to be an expression of his love for you his wisdom, and his goodness. We can trust God. When we seek God's desires, his pleasure, that's the beginning of real joy and real fulfillment for you. So I want to leave us today with, with, uh, with this. How do we love like Jesus loves? How do we do this? How do we resist the counterfeit love of the world and, and redirect our, our attention so that we can delight in God's will, God's will in his ways. I want to give you three things. Number one is just what we've been talking about. Love God more than anything else. Love God, just decide to love God more than anything else. Make him your highest priority. Make him your greatest treasure and your ultimate goal. Spend time with him. You love things that you spend time with, right? So spend time with God. Spend time with him in prayer and in worship daily, reading his word, and especially those passages that talk about who you are, remind you of who you are in Christ, right? The power that you have over the things of the world through Christ. And listen to his voice. Obey his commands. Follow his guidance. Love God more than anything else. Number two, love people more than things. Make other people your main focus. Make them your deepest concern and, and your most important responsibility, Whoever God brings across your path every day, have your eyes open. Serve them with kindness and compassion and generosity. Don't just look at them as obstacles in your day or just decorations in, in your life. Serve them. Share with them your gifts and your encouragement and your love and share them your story. And number three, love yourself more than your image. Now, this might be surprising for some people. We're, we're supposed to love ourselves? Yeah, but not the false idol that we make ourselves into, right? Or the fake self that we present to other people. That's, that's doesn't, number one, it doesn't even exist. It's not true. So just let it evaporate. Let that go. Make peace with who you are. Make peace with how you look and what you have. It's when we accept that false version of ourselves that we know deep down we're lying to ourselves, and that leads to trying to escape through distractions and addictions and illusions. Accept yourself as God's beloved child. You're created in His image. You're redeemed by His grace. So celebrate. Celebrate yourself as God's masterpiece. You are. You're gifted with the Spirit, and you're called for a purpose. Amen? So the secret is love. We love God. We love others. We learn to love ourselves in a healthy way. But now let me be clear also. These are not the rules that you have to follow to earn God's love. Right? You don't have to earn his approval by following these rules. These are not the conditions you have to meet to receive his grace or his forgiveness. No, 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 no. These are the responses 
that we get to have to God's love that is already given to us. His love is already given to us. He's already proclaimed who you are. What John is now telling us is this is how we respond. This is how we respond to, this is the outward expression of people who believe what John just said about us last week, that we are the children of God whose sins have been forgiven, who know God. We've overcome the evil one, right? We are strong. We are filled with his word so we can love. So God loves us first. God has always loved us and he loves us no matter what. He loves you no matter what. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the message of Jesus And it's really the heart of John's whole letter that we're looking at all summer long. God loves us. And because he loves us, because he loves you, he wants you to love him back. He wants you to love him back. He wants you to love others as he loves other people. He wants you to love yourself the way he loves you, right? And when we do that, we're going to find true joy. We're going to find true our potential and eternal life that starts now, not later. It starts right now, right? A life abiding in his presence. And yes, we're going to find victory over those things that seem so strong to us right now when we love God. I just thought about this when I was sitting there during the worship. I was like, I love my wife. I don't, I don't have to avoid cheating on my wife through my willpower. It's really not a matter of willpower. We left that long ago. I love her so much, I wouldn't dream of it, right? It is that way with our, with our God. When you learn to love God more than the things of the world, temptation becomes a whole different type of thing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, Thank you, Father, for for this beautiful letter from John, Lord God, that we get to study. We thank you for your love, Lord God, the love that creates us and sustains us and redeems us, Lord God. We thank you for your love that's unconditional, it's eternal, Lord God. We thank you, Father God, that that love that's expressed fully in the person of Jesus. We confess, Lord God, that we have not loved you as we should. We've not loved our neighbors, we're told to. We we have loved the world and its idols more than you, Lord God. We have loved the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life more than you, Lord God. We've loved ourselves more than you. We ask for your forgiveness and your mercy. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Father God, for your forgiveness. Victory begins with repentance. And so we thank you, Lord God, that we can trust you. We can bring those things to you and you come to us not with condemnation, but with freedom. We thank you, Father God. We, we receive your grace and your power. We ask for your spirit and your presence. We surrender our lives to you this morning, Lord God. We commit our ways to you, Lord God. We choose this morning, Lord God, to love you more than anyone else. We choose to love people more than things, and we choose to love ourselves more than our image. We choose to love like you love. Help us, Holy Spirit, to do this well. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. If you're one of our prayer partners, would you come forward right now? And uh, if there's anything you need prayer about, these guys would love to pray for you today. 
whatever's going on in your life, if you need a physical uh, healing, they could pray, they want to pray for, for that. If you have a financial situation going on, if you have a relational situation going on with people in your life, whatever it is, if you want to say yes to Jesus today, maybe for the first time, or maybe you just feel like you've been really far from God for a long time, and you just want to, you want to come back into that relationship with Jesus and experience that love for him and that love that he has for you. Come forward and let these guys pray with you. They would love to lead you in that next right step. We hope you have a wonderful day and a blessed week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance and pour out his mercy in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.